All right. We're going to pray for a couple other churches this morning. Um, one of them is a church that we've prayed for a few times in the past. Uh, it is Cedar City Church uh, down south in Lebanon, Ohio. And uh, they have been uh, planting a church for a couple years now. And just last week, they moved into a new facility. And so they're, they're having to work out all the kinks that go with getting a new facility and uh, helping the public to know where they are and all that. And so that's a lot of extra stuff on the plate of David Hackney and the other leaders there. So we're going to pray for David as he's preaching this morning and their church as they're listening to the preached word. We're also going to pray for Grace Life Church in Alberta, Canada. So if you guys have been following them at all, their pastor was jailed for 35 days uh, because their church was continuing to meet as a congregation when the health department or whatever they call it in Alberta said, you cannot do this. So he's out of jail, but last, I think it was Tuesday, this Tuesday, they came and fenced off the whole building with two layers of high fencing and covered the doors and locked everybody out saying, you will not gather to worship the Lord Jesus this Sunday. Now, I have no idea what their plan is. I am sure they are gathered somewhere worshiping this morning, or will be in a couple hours as the time difference catches up over there. So we're going to pray for that church and for the church on Lebanon, Cedar City. So let's pray. Father, thank you that we can gather this morning. We thank you for those uh, who are here in person and those who are gathering with us online. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, not only in our church, but in the other churches in our area and these two churches that we're praying for, that, that your gospel would be preached clearly this morning, pray that your word would be proclaimed clearly and honestly and accurately. I pray for David and the folks down at Cedar City Church as they get used to their new building. Lord, would you grow that congregation? Would you bring people to them who need to hear the gospel? Would they hear it and respond with repentance and faith, become new creatures in Christ, and would they grow as mature disciples? Lord, would you be working in that church for the good of that community? Would you encourage David and his family and the other leaders there at the church, help them to have the strength in you to continue that hard work there? Lord, we pray for Pastor Coates and the leaders of Grace Life Church in Alberta. Would you encourage them? Would you fill them with courage this morning, Lord? I thank you for the gracious, humble, yet strong way that they have responded to the, the way that the government has tried to shut down their church. Lord, I pray that you would use this as a way of, of growing and expanding your church there in Edmonton. Lord, would, you, would your gospel go out clearly because of this? Would you help the leaders and the, the regular people in that church to stand firmly on the gospel, knowing that you have saved them, that it's none of their own works, and it's their, their willingness to stand is not something to earn your favor, but it is a result of thankfulness for what you have done for them. Lord, would the true gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, would it go out as a result of the craziness that's happening there? I pray, Lord, that you would um, be protecting them, that you would uh, help them to make wise decisions as they try to figure out how, how to go forward as a church, Lord. And would your kingdom advance there? We pray, Lord, now that you would help us to hear your word clearly, that as we place ourselves under the authority of your word, that you would speak to us as your people through your written word, that we would know what it is that you're telling us this morning and how you would have us respond. Lord, I pray that hard hearts would be softened, that eyes and ears would be opened, and uh, that your, your truth would transform lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right. Now, what I'd like you to do is open up a Bible and find Genesis chapter 42. It's on page 35 in a pew Bible. And the reason I'm asking you to actually find it in the Bible, even though it'll be on the screen, is because I want you guys to see not only where it's located in the Bible, but I want you to see with the words held in your own hands what it is that God has put in this book for us. I don't want you to just uh, listen to me, take my word for it, or even trust what you see on the screen. I want you to see it as the written word of God for you in your hands. I want to sum up for us where we've been. If, you're, if you've been with us for a long time, you know we've been walking through the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, uh, off and on since the middle of 2018. We're getting to the end of it. The last section of Genesis is about Joseph, who is one of the sons of Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. That's where we get the name for the nation of Israel. So this is all taking place a few thousand years ago on the other side of the world, but it is relevant to today. And actually, this passage we're going to look at today is is very relevant to today. Joseph, uh, he's he's the the first son of the, the favorite wife. His dad Um, through some sin and some trickery, he ends up with four wives. Rachel is the one that he wanted. She's the favorite one. And Joseph was the only son for a while of Rachel, and then Benjamin came along at the end. At the point that we pick up the story today, Joseph has been in Egypt as a slave for at least 20 years. His brothers, the the ten brothers who were so jealous of him, sold him as a slave after beating him, stripping him, and throwing him in a pit. They sold him as a slave. He was taken to Egypt, and this roller coaster of a life laid out. He started at the top of life. He was the favorite son of an up-and-coming influential family. He had basically everything that he needed, but then his brothers sold him as a slave, and he found himself at a new low in his life. But God raised him up, even as a slave, and put him as the second most powerful person in one of the predominant families and households in Egypt. He was still a slave, but he was in a place of honor and authority and leadership. And God used him in great ways in that family. And then he was wrongfully accused of sin and he was thrown into prison. And while he was in prison, two of the, the servants of Pharaoh were also thrown into prison. They had some dreams. Joseph, by the Spirit of God, interpreted those dreams for them. One of those guys was released back to Pharaoh. The other guy lost his head. The one who was released back to Pharaoh was supposed to mention Joseph to Pharaoh and get him out of prison. And so Joseph's hopes rose. Even though he was still in prison, he had hoped that any day now he would get out. And two years passed, and he was still in prison, now at a new low in his life, feeling like God had abandoned him. But God had different plans. And Pharaoh had two very troubling dreams. And the, the guy who was supposed to remember Joseph finally did remember him and said, Hey, Pharaoh, I know this guy, he's in prison, but he's really good with dreams. Maybe he could help you out. And so Joseph interpreted the dreams for Pharaoh, and God, speaking through Joseph, warned Pharaoh of what was going to happen over the next 14 years. He said, Pharaoh, you better get ready because these next seven years are going to be great. You're going to have more, more harvest than you know what to do with. So you're going to have to store it up because the second set of seven years is going to be a famine like you cannot 
imagine. Not just here in Egypt, but all over the known world, the crops are going to fail. The ground is going to dry up and people are going to be hungry. But God, speaking through Joseph, warned Pharaoh ahead of time so that he could get, get ready for that. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of this project, puts him in charge of the whole land of Egypt so that, the Bible tells us, only Pharaoh was greater than Joseph. So he's now risen to the point where he is the second most powerful person in the world. Technically, he's still a slave. In today's chapter, there's a family reunion because the famine has come on And over in the land of Canaan, which we now call the land of Israel, Joseph's brothers and his father and all of the the kids and grandkids, they are hungry. They are getting desperate. And Jacob, Joseph's father, knows that there is food available for sale in Egypt. And so he's going to send his brothers to go get some food and bring it back so that they won't die. That's where we pick up today. So Genesis 42 the whole chapter, 1 through 38. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Or, you lazy bums, why are you just sitting around doing nothing? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin Joseph's brother with his brothers. So Benjamin is the youngest. He's the baby of the family. He's the only other child of the favorite wife, Rachel. Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And if you've been tracking with us for these last few weeks or months, this should be setting off alarms in your mind. Wait a minute. What about those dreams way back in the beginning of the Joseph story that started all the trouble where Joseph came to his brothers and said, hey guys, I had these two dreams and they seem to mean that you and my parents, they're going to bow down. You guys are going to bow down before me. Isn't that a neat dream, brothers of mine? And they responded with bitterness and jealousy and ended up stripping them, throwing them a pit and slaving, selling them off as a slave. But those dreams were from God. And now 20 years later, they are starting to come true. And I have to imagine that for years, Joseph wondered if anything was ever going to happen from those. He probably assumed he was never going to see his family again. He was not free to leave Egypt. He didn't know why they would come to Egypt. But here in walk these 10 brothers, and he knows who they are. And they bow before him, and the memories of those dreams from 20 years past come flooding back into his mind. God was working his plan. The sovereign God of the universe has been working in Joseph's life, even when he was at the bottom, and then up a little, and then really at the bottom, and now at the top. Through all of that, God has been working this story. Verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not 
recognize him. Why would they not recognize him? Well, first of all, they assume he's dead or a slave somewhere working in the fields. They have no reason to suspect that the man in charge of the most powerful nation in the world is their brother. They haven't seen him in 20 years. He is, we know from previous chapters, he is clean-shaven, which is the way of the Egyptians. He's not wearing the beard like they would expect if he was their Hebrew brother. He is wearing probably royal expensive robes and probably a fancy headdress. He's probably sitting on a throne, not the throne, but like a junior throne. He's probably got attendants all around him. He's speaking Egyptian to them, and they don't recognize him. But he recognizes them. And it says he speaks roughly to them. We think, well, of course he's going to speak roughly to them because of the way that they treated him so many years ago. But actually, he's got a different plan going here. He begins this plan of interrogation because, as I'm sure, as they're walking through the, the big royal room and he's realizing who they are, he's counting them up. And Okay, so Benjamin's not there. Benjamin was two years old when he last saw him. Right? So Benjamin's not there. Is Benjamin still alive? Is my dad still alive? How are things going back in Canaan? He wants answers, and he He quickly crafts this plan and decides how to interrogate them. I imagine that he uses what what I would consider like a James Earl Jones angry voice. Like as deep and menacing, yet under control in a royal way as he can. He asks them, where are you from? And they're shaking in their boots. Verse 9. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. He said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. The accusation there is that they want to know if they can invade Egypt. Is Egypt weak? And they're spying it out. That's that's what he's accusing them. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Honest men. How hard must it have been for Joseph to control his voice, his facial expressions, his mannerisms when these murderous, tricky, deceitful, awful brothers. I say murderous because uh, you know, two of his brothers actually, in premeditated, cold-blooded murder, killed all of the men of the town of Shechem. One of his other brothers commits incest with his father's wife, in order to try to raise himself up in the family pecking order. Another of his brothers um, thinks he is engaging the services of a prostitute, but it's actually his daughter-in-law dressed as a Canaanite prostitute. These are wicked, messed up men. And here they stand before him and say, we are honest men. We're good guys. We're just here to buy food, right? Well, Joseph accuses them of being spies, coming to see the nakedness of the land. And he goes on. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. He said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers. All right, so he's he's getting more information. First it was just these ten guys. Now, oh, there are twelve of them, right? The sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, that's Benjamin, and one is no more. That's the guy that they're talking to. saying he's basically dead. He's gone. We don't don't know where he is. 
So Joseph's plan is working. They're volunteering more information. He now knows that Benjamin is alive. Dad is alive. They're all still living in the land of Canaan. And at least these boys remember him and mention him. The hopes and the affections that he has for his little brother, who was two when he last saw him, rise up inside of him and and overcome him with emotion. Verse 14. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So, he would have been within his right to just put him in prison for the rest of their lives, or, or even kill him. The things that they did to him were evil. He did not deserve them. He now has the power to do whatever he wants to them. He's going to do something that at first seems harsh, but is actually leading to grace, leading to mercy. He says, you pick one of you, the rest of you will stay in jail, the one will go back, get Benjamin, and bring him here. If you're lying, I'm considering you all spies, and your lives are forfeit, probably, at that point. He then throws him in jail for three days, turning up the the heat on the pressure cooker. Now these boys, who know they, are, they know they are not trustworthy, they now have to try to figure out among themselves who's the one that's going to get to go back to the land of Canaan. Who are the other nine who will have to stay and wait to see if that one comes back for them? Verse 17. He put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Now, he's going to give them a new plan, but notice there's this this hint embedded in here. These boys are members of the chosen family of Israel, the chosen family that God has picked out of all the rest of the world in order to be his representatives, to be the establishment of a new kingdom on earth that would eventually bring forth the Messiah and birth the actual kingdom of God on earth. These guys are the the seed of that new kingdom, representatives of God. They show up in the court of Pharaoh, the king of the known world at that point, and they make no mention of God at all. And yet this, whom they would see as a pagan governor of a pagan land, now says to them, I fear God. Not the gods, as you would expect in pagan Egypt with all the many gods and goddesses that they say, but I fear God. And as Moses records it for us, we have the Hebrew word here, Elohim. At this point, uh, Joseph has been speaking in Egyptian, and we're meant to understand that he now identifies this God whom he fears as the same God that these guys are supposed to be the representatives of. I think he's giving them a little bit of a clue, but he's also poking them in the ribs. I fear God, unlike you losers. You didn't fear God when you stripped me of my robe and threw me in the pit and sold me as slaves. You don't fear God now as you come and claim to be innocent. I fear God, and so I'm going to be merciful to you. Verse 19. If you are honest men, it's a big if, let one of your brothers 
so not nine, but one of your brothers, remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine to your households. Bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. They did so. This is, this is grace at work. They deserved great punishment. What they got was grace. They actually were provided for generously. So they, they get a whole bunch of grain. Rather than just one guy trying to carry all the grain back, it's nine of them, so they can carry a whole lot more to the rest of the family who is starving. One stays behind instead of nine. That one is one less mouth to feed on the way back. He's going to be cared for in prison there. It's, it's a blessing to the family, this new plan that Joseph has. And he still wants to see if they're telling the truth. He still wants to see his younger brother, Benjamin. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, speaking of Joseph, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That that is why this distress has come upon us. So the words of Joseph, the actions of Joseph, the harshness, the pressure cooker, and the grace are working in these guys changing those hard hearts, softening them. The Spirit of God is at work doing what the Spirit of God loves to do. He's convicting themselves of their sin. He has made no mention of Joseph. He's not revealed himself as Joseph. And yet, because of the Spirit of God at work in them, they rightly are putting things together, saying, we are guilty. 20 years ago, when our brother was crying out to us, please let me out of the pit, spare me. We were hard toward him. We are guilty. And now this has come upon us because of that. Our current problem, they think, is a result of our sin 20 years ago. Now Joseph can understand all that they're saying. Imagine what's going on in Joseph's heart as he realizes that these scoundrels are softening. That the ones who wanted to kill him and then were talked out of it and just sold them as a slave, that they are feeling remorse. They are confessing now with their mouths their sin. God is at work in them. Their guilt is a gift. It's leading them to confession, to repentance, to change. Now that's true of us too. When you feel guilty, it is a gift. It is grace at work. We'll talk about that more later. Verse 22, Reuben answered them. Remember, Reuben is the the firstborn. He's the one that stood up for Joseph when everybody else wanted to kill him in the pit. He said, no, let's sell him as a slave instead. Reuben answered them. Again, Joseph's listening in. They don't know he understands. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter Between them, he's speaking Egyptian, they're speaking Hebrew. So what a surprise. What a surprise here for Joseph that Reuben, the firstborn, actually stood up for him those 20 years ago. I think it was probably Joseph's plan to force Reuben to be the one that stays behind. But now I think the plan's changing. And he picks number two, Simeon, instead. 24. Then he, that's Joseph, turned away from them and wept. 
He returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. He does this secretly. They don't know what's happening. Therefore, they're getting all the grain for free. Again, this is grace at work. And to give them provisions for their journey. So extra food for the journey. This was done for them. So there's, there's more grace, more goodness, more mercy given by this mysterious man who is the governor of Egypt to the men who wanted him dead. This is how God responds to us, too. Joseph here is a shadow, a, 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 a picture of the greater reality of how God works with us. We are like the brothers. We have done evil. We deserve punishment. And yet God offers us grace, mercy. 26. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Not for us. Not, hey, look, we got our money and we got our grain. Look what God has done for us. No, it's what has God done to us? They don't see this as a blessing. They see this as a curse because now they're in trouble. They, they will be accused of stealing. How are they going to take their beloved baby brother back and get more grain if they need it if they are thieves in the land of Egypt? Verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take grain for the famine of your households. And go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. It will be open to you. You can do what you please. Now, they conveniently leave out things like they were in prison for three days, or how they were feeling guilty and convicted of their previous sin, because dad doesn't know that Joseph's alive. Dad, doesn't, dad thinks that Joseph was killed 20 years ago. They've never come clean to dad. Verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when they, had, when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. So again, the money in the sacks is seen as a curse brought on them as punishment from God in order to get them in more trouble. Verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him, that is Benjamin, back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. So Reuben, 
sees his father's heart breaking. And he steps up and does a heroic thing. He says, I will ensure the safety of Benjamin to Egypt to see the man and back. And if I fail at this, kill my two sons. Now that's a real bummer for the two sons. They didn't do anything wrong here. But that's the deal that that Reuben makes here. Now, Reuben thinks he's, he's being the hero here. He's offering the solution to this family problem. He's trying to do what's right. Here is the response. Verse 38. But he, Jacob, said, My son, meaning Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, to the underworld, to the grave. Ouch, right? Here's Reuben rising up. I'm the oldest. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to make personal sacrifice. If I fail, I will make this right, Dad. And Dad responds with, I don't care anything about you guys anyway. Benjamin is the only one that I care about because Joseph's gone. They're the only two that came from the wife that I love anyway. If Benjamin dies, I have nothing left. Yeah, I've still got these other sons, but they don't count at all. Only Benjamin matters. Can you imagine being in a family like that? Can you imagine dad saying to you, your life is nothing to me? Even after you make this heroic gesture to try to fix the problem in the family. Your life is nothing to me. I only care about this other boy. And there's no way I'm trusting you, you miserable loser, with this one son, the only son I have left. The next couple chapters in this story will show how Benjamin goes with his brothers back to Egypt, how Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, how eventually Jacob and the rest of the clan come to Egypt. That's all in the next few chapters. But what I want to do now is skip us to the New Testament and see how this particular story points us to our own predicament. How do we deal with our guilt now? And so these boys, were, they were stuck, they were guilty. And then God graciously worked in them so they could feel their guilt and confess their guilt. And that's the beginning of a path toward healing in that family. The crushing weight of the guilt that they felt was actually a gracious gift. It's true for us too. We are all guilty before a perfect holy God. The song that we sang this morning, holy, 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 when the Bible puts three holies together, it's basically saying the mostest holiness uh, you can possibly imagine. Holy beyond all holiness. Perfect. Pure. And you got no business being anywhere near it. Because we're messed up. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul in chapter 3 makes it clear to us that we are all dirty. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, you find this on page 940, says this, as it is written, none is righteous, so no one is pure, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, 
Like Jacob saying to Reuben, you're worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, you can read, it goes on from there with some other uh, pretty poetic and, and rough language there. But if we skip down a few verses to verse 23, we read this damning statement. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, me, you, everybody who's listening online, those who are at home sleeping in right now, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. That is what we are as humans naturally. We're all sinful. Even the best person that you know, the best person that you can imagine still falls short of what that person was designed to be and what God has called that person to be and demanded from that person. None of us have a right to stand in the presence of God. We are all guilty. Now, this, this sense of failure, this sense of guilt is hardwired into us as humans. Every culture, every country, every civilization throughout all of history has naturally felt this, this guilt that is hardwired into us. And so they have constructed various religious systems to deal with the guilt. You see it all over the world. Now, it comes in all kinds of forms and shapes and names and all that stuff, but basically every civilization has, has correctly perceived that there is some kind of higher power that has created everything and rules over everything. Maybe it's one god, maybe it's a whole bunch of gods and goddesses, maybe it's a mysterious force, whatever, but every civilization has said there must be something more than what we see here. Something has to be in charge of all of this. And whatever that something is, we are not worthy to be with that something. Every soul feels that. And so you get all these different religious ideas built all the world over, all with the, the main goal of dealing with our guilt. How do, we, how do we get rid of, how do we deal with the guilt that crushes us as we compare ourselves to whatever we think is in charge of this universe? What do we do with it? Those systems are what I refer to as the law. Now, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament of the Bible, when you see the law, it's speaking specifically of the laws given by God to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, most, most importantly, the Ten Commandments, but all the rest of the laws too. That religious system given by God to the Jewish people as a temporary holding place until Jesus would come. That's the law. But it's representative of the way that we as humanity all over the world make up our own religious laws and systems in order to deal with our guilt. Christianity stands alone of all the religions in the world and says, the law gets you nowhere. It doesn't matter what your system is. It doesn't matter how well you try to follow that system. You cannot get rid of your own guilt by following any system of religious law. The law cannot make us clean. The law cannot save us. Last summer we went through the book of Galatians together. The whole point, the main point of Galatians is the law can't save you, only grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone can save you. And so you may remember this from Galatians 2, 16. 
we know that a person is not justified, that is, made clean, made declared not guilty. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. If you've been around here for a while, you've heard this over and over again. It's not your good deeds, it's not your good intentions, it's not your religiousness, it's not your attendance, your sacrificial giving and your service and your denying of yourself certain pleasures. None of that gets you clean of your guilt. For some of you, that's so familiar that it's like, yeah, whatever, I've heard this a million times. But I, I want you to see just how unique that claim is in the world. There are so many other religions that all claim the exact opposite. Do these things and maybe you'll be accepted by God or the gods. Most churches, even in our country, actually preach a message of law, of be good, do good, do these things and maybe God will accept you. They have in front of them the, the written word of God, the Galatians chapter 2 that says nobody's justified by the works of the law, only by faith. And yet, what is past for Christianity in most of our country is actually just a, a reworking of that same messed up human process of trying to make a system to get right with God. Perform well enough and God might accept you. Sometimes that's subtle. Sometimes it's just stated outright. Do these things and God will accept you. In 1931, a Polish nun named Faustina claimed that Jesus appeared to her in her room one night. She said that Jesus told her to paint a picture of himself with rays emanating from his heart and the words, Jesus, I trust in you, on the painting. This is not the original painting. Um, this is just a, a modern representation of it. In this vision that she claims to have had, Jesus then promised that anyone who would venerate, that is, bow down to, I would say veneration is, is worship. Our Catholic friends would say, no, you go too far to call it that. But I would say venerating an image, that, that's idolatry in my mind. If anyone would venerate the image that she painted, that person would never die. They would have eternal life. She's claiming that Jesus said those things. Now many years later, she's officially made a, a saint of the Roman Catholic Church, and today is the day that is celebrated as the Feast of the Divine Mercy in the Catholic Church. This was in our village newspaper this week. Now, I know I'm going to step on some toes here, but I want you guys to see really clearly the contrast between a system built on man's attempts to make themselves right with God and the gospel of the New Testament that says it is grace by faith alone. Now, I know that's really hard to see, and so what I'm going to do is actually read for you those highlighted areas that are in there. We're going to contrast it with the gospel. And you, all this time, I want you to be thinking, what do I do with my guilt? How do I get rid of my guilt? Here's one answer. The gospel is another answer. This says in the first highlighted area, Jesus has given promises to this feast as he said. Now, here's, this is supposed to be a quote from Jesus. 
I will pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the fount of my mercy. And I I think that's referring to the image and the idea of his heart with the, the rays coming out. The soul that will go to confession, receive Holy Communion, pray the chaplet, which is a special variation on on, uh, praying the rosary specifically for that feast, while venerating the image of the divine mercy, shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment. This is saying that Jesus said, if you... Go to confession, take communion, pray the rosary in this particular way, and venerate this image. You will have complete forgiveness of sin and punishment. Do these things on this particular day, and you're clean. You see how that is completely different than the gospel of the New Testament. The next section that I have highlighted. It's talking about the eight days leading up to it. On each day, you will bring to my heart a different group of souls. Again, this is saying that Jesus is is saying this. You will bring to my heart a different group of souls, and I will immerse them in the abundance of my mercy, and I will bring all of these souls in the house of my Father. If you, in prayer and veneration to this image, if you bring individuals to the heart of Jesus over these eight days, Jesus is promising he will save them. He will welcome them into the house of the Father. They will be in heaven. So if you do these particular things, it will save these other people during this eight-day window. This is not the gospel. This is This is man doing works in order to earn not only salvation for yourself, but salvation for others. It doesn't matter what the other people believe. It doesn't matter what the other people have lived as far as their life. They they could be completely antagonistic to God, but if you do this, this magic formula on these particular days, then they are guaranteed, words of Jesus right here, to be in the house of the Father. This is not the gospel. And then at the end... If you make a good confession any time, eight days prior or eight days after Divine Mercy, that's today, Divine Mercy Sunday, you can receive a plenary indulgence. Now, for us in Protestant churches, we're thinking, what in the world is a plenary indulgence? It is the thing that the Protestant Reformation was fought over. Okay? So within the official teachings of the Catholic Church, there are two kinds of sin. There's mortal sin, which necessarily leads to death. It cannot be forgiven. It results in you being condemned to hell. Then there is venial sin, which is not as severe as mortal sin. And venial sin can be forgiven. The death of Jesus provides that forgiveness. The grace of Jesus provides that forgiveness, but does not cover the punishment for those sins. And so you have to work off your punishment, your guilt. You do that some in this life, but primarily you do that in what the Catholic Church refers to as purgatory, which is not in the Bible. It is something made up by humans. It is a tool used to control and manipulate people, and it is false. But the idea is you work off in purgatory your guilt, the weight that's on you. Yes, Jesus forgave that, 
but you still have to pay the punishment. This is saying that you get, if you do confession during these eight days, if, if you do these things, you will get a plenary indulgence, which is like a credit to your account. So if, if you had to work off a thousand years of torture in purgatory, now maybe you're down to 999 years. That's what a plenary indulgence is. Now, how you get verification of that and present it to whoever is in charge of this imaginary land in order to get out faster, I don't know how that works at all. But what we have here in print, in clear, succinct words, is a promise that you can save yourself, that you can save others, that you can purify yourself if you do these particular things. I have great news for you people. That is not true. It's not true. It's a lie. It's a false system giving a false hope. Yeah, there are lots of brothers and sisters in Christ in the Catholic Church who God has saved in spite of the false system. But it is a false system. Why do I bring this up today? Well, because our passage in Genesis is dealing with guilt. How do we deal with guilt? And because this is actually happening right now, literally right now, this is what is happening. And I want you guys to so clearly see the contrast between any system that man creates and the true gospel. The true gospel is this. You, on your own, are hopelessly lost. You can do nothing to clean yourself up, to forgive your sin, to get rid of your guilt, to be accepted by God. You can do nothing about that. It doesn't matter if you go to holy days and do certain things. None of that matters. It's as though God looked at us, and this would be a serious paraphrase, basically said, yuck, you are so dirty, I can't have anything to do with you. And he casts us off into eternal punishment. But he also then says, but I love you so much that I will make a way that you can be made clean and then you can be with me for all eternity. That way, that only way, the one way is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, living the perfect life, dying in our place on the cross, taking all the punishment. You don't have to work it off. He took it all taking all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame on him, dying three days later, rising from the dead in victory. He does all the work. He is, in his words, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Your good works accomplish nothing. If you are trying to contribute to your own salvation, it shows that you are not trusting in Christ alone and you are still lost. So hear me this morning. It is all the work of Christ on your behalf. It is all His grace, His mercy. You receive it as a gift and there's nothing you contribute except for your sin. There's nothing you contribute. If you will trust in Christ alone, 
If you'll say, I used to try to be in charge of my life, I used to try to make myself better, be a better person, I'm going to walk away from all of that, I'm no longer going to try to rule my own life and clean myself up, I'm going to trust in Christ alone, then he forgives all of your sin, he removes all of your guilt, all of your punishment, he makes you a new creation in Christ and adopts you as a son or daughter of the king of the universe. That is the gospel. Now Joseph, he knew basically none of that. But God is working through Joseph to start laying that foundation. This, the fact that Joseph is gracious to his brothers, doesn't give them what they deserve, but instead gives them mercy, gives them grace, that is laying for us the foundation that 2,000 years later would be completed in the work of Christ. So let me remind you passage that I've reminded you of hundreds of times. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, that is the gift, grace. For by grace you have been saved by faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just as Joseph leveraged the guilt of his brothers to to soften their hearts, to bring them to confession as the Spirit works in them, he extends grace and mercy to us even today. Are you still outside of the family of God? Today, you can be welcomed into the family of God. You can abandon that old life of self-sufficiency, and you can trust completely in Christ alone for salvation. If you are going to be saved, it is only through the gift of God, the work of Christ on your behalf. It is only by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words in Genesis that show us a foundation of guilt, leading to confession, leading eventually to forgiveness, grace and mercy working in that, Lord, Thank you that as beautiful as that story is and as surprising as it is, what happens later, Jesus in the flesh, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, is the completion of that story. Lord, I I pray for those who are here and who are listening, who are still holding on to this hope that they can somehow be good enough to be accepted by you. Lord, please show them the folly of that. May they turn and trust only in you. Lord, for those of us who have trusted in you, we are now part of your family. Remind us of these gospel truths. We, even when we've been saved by you, we are so easily duped into making our own systems in order to make ourselves better and look better and be more impressive. And we so quickly forget the gospel. So remind us, Lord. Even those of us who have been walking with you for decades, remind us that it is not us. It is you. It is your work. So we worship you. We give you praise. We give you thanks. We confess our sinfulness and fallenness to you. We receive your forgiveness. We we live because you live in us. Lord, as we Get ready to sing this last song. Work in us. Cause your spirit to work in us and 
root out the sin and the hardness and the things that we're holding on to and bring us, Lord, into greater fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.